So Matthew chapter 18. So we will pick up our reading in verse um, 18, excuse me, verse 21, and read down to the end of the chapter. So let's read this together and let the word of God speak. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay his master, to pay, excuse me, um, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each one of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So Lord, once again we come. And we submit ourselves to you, and we read a passage like this, Lord, and it's a, it's a heavy passage, and it's so instructive as it comes from the very voice of Jesus. And so would you reveal to us the things that we need to know? Speak to us, Lord. Our hearts and our ears are open, and we want to hear what you have to speak to your church today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we started Matthew chapter 18 last week, we began with that issue of who was the greatest and dealing with offenses. And then Jesus told us that amazing, beautiful parable of the sheep and the shepherd where the shepherd had a hundred sheep, but one wandered off and then he left the 99 to go find that one sheep. And we were reminded of God's heart toward all of us, God's heart toward one sinning sheep and he goes after that sheep and brings that sheep back the hound of heaven pursuing us keeping us close by then as we got into verses 15 through 20 we began to deal with this issue of if your bible has subheadings they're dealing with a sinning brother and as we talked about that last week uh, we were reminded that there is a process for resolving issues and difficulties with other brothers and sisters in Christ and really 
It's a good way to resolve issues with anyone. But you go to your brother alone if you're aware that he or she has something against you. You do your best to settle that issue with them. But keep in mind here, we're talking about a person who is sinning against us and not just someone who may have, you know, inadvertently hurt our feelings or someone with whom we may have a different opinion on different topics. But we're talking about matters of sins, things that are sin. Anything that's sin is a sin against God, but it's also a sin against us. And you may remember David in Psalm 51 after he had been reminded of his sin with Bathsheba and how he had sent her husband back to the front lines and had him essentially murdered by putting him into the, the front of the battle. Nathan the prophet had come to David and after David had realized his sin and he confessed it to the Lord. In his confession, he said, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. So yes, David's sin was against that family. He was against her husband, he was against her, he was against all of her relatives and the way that he treated her and, and the way that he took her to be his own when he had no right to do so. But while David's sin was permeating in that it had affected other people, he realized in the privacy of his own heart that his sin was against God and God alone. And I believe the Lord may have given us this passage about how do we deal with a sinning brother or sister to help us understand that sometimes God wants us to use, to use us as a part of that process in bringing that sin uh, to the attention of that sinning brother or sister who may be ignorant or unaware of their sin and how their actions and their attitudes are harming other people. You know, so often we want to do uh, the thing where we just sweep it under the rug and we just say, look, man, I don't want to deal with conflict. I don't want to deal with this. But the Lord says, if you're aware of something, and it says there in verse 15, uh, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. And the whole thrust of that is to gain the brother or sister, to win them back by bringing their sin before them. Now, if you go to them and they are unwilling to hear and receive and you've done your best to try and be at peace with them and to resolve the issue, but they are unwilling, then you might bring back two or three witnesses. And as we talked about this last week, not so much our, our posse or all the people who agree with us and support us, but, but loving, wise, discerning brothers and sisters in Christ who will be objective and who are there to see both parties' Uh, interest served and who are there to see the sinning or the erring brother or sister restored. And so we, we worked through that passage last week. And we saw some wonderful things about how to handle these conflicts and to deal with a sinning brother or sister. We were reminded that the way heaven does things is to go privately. You know, God's method is not to take our sin and put it on display for all to see to take all of our sin just here in this room or online listening today and display it up on the TV screen so that all could see it. No, God would rather deal with us privately and bring us to that place where we acknowledge our sin and that we confess our sin and that we repent of our sin. And so it is with our sinning brothers and sisters. You may remember back in the book of Genesis that the Lord wrestled with Jacob privately. And you remember that famous moment when 
Jacob wouldn't let go until he blessed him. And so the Lord touched his hip. And remember, he had a limp from that day on as the Lord touched him. So the Lord and Jacob wrestled in private as God touched him. And that's where he said, your name is now Israel. You used to have the name Sneaky Thief, but now your name is governed by God. That's what Israel means. Well, remember maybe back in the time of the kings when King Hezekiah was undergoing a difficult time and he had received letters and threats and he went before the Lord and he spread out in private all of those letters and threats and he said, Lord, what do I do with this? So going in private before the Lord and, you know, if we ever find ourselves on the receiving end of someone coming to us saying, I have a problem with you. You did this and you hurt me or you sinned against me. You know, our normal human reaction is to do what? It's to become defensive and say, hey man, it's not my problem, it's your problem. Right? And to kick it back to them. But I think one of the thrusts, one of the intents of this passage of Scripture is to help us understand not only how do we do it if we have to go to someone, but what if I'm in the seat of the receiver, meaning they're coming to me, you're coming to me. What should be my attitude? And my attitude should be one of saying, okay, well, maybe there's something here. Maybe I did do something or say something that was sinful or harmful or hurtful. And I need to be open to that. And in the same way that we said there's a process that you go, you go first privately, and then if they won't receive, you go and you bring uh, two or three witnesses. And if it comes to the place where you have to take it before the people in authority, namely the leadership of the church or the church themselves, and say, we need to deal with this issue. This is a person who's living in sin, and they're, they're unrepentant of their sin, and they don't want to hear it. And now we have to take it to a higher level. From our point of view, now being on the other end, we need to be in the place where we want to say, Lord, far be it from me that I should be resistant to that and that I should be that sinning or that erring brother or sister and that I become unwilling to receive. And so we want to be in that place where when there are offenses taking place, when there's sin taking place between brothers and sisters, that we have a receptive heart that we are willing to receive as well as to give in that situation. And now Peter, in verse 21, continuing with this same theme, came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? So now he's, Peter's thinking about this. Good for Peter. He's starting to think about how do I apply this to my life? What does this mean to me? And the common rabbinical teaching of that day was three strikes and you're out. You forgive someone three times, but at that third time, you're like, I'm done with you, buddy. We're all done here. I'm not going to get hurt by you again. And we adopt this worldly, fleshly attitude that says, no, I'm not talking to you anymore. And Peter, in speaking to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. So he doubled it and added one, thinking that he was being incredibly gracious and merciful. And Jesus says in verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven Okay, you didn't think you were going to have to do math on Sunday morning, so wake up. It's math time. Is it 490 times? Did Jesus set a limit? Did he say, okay, you can keep track, you can keep your little hash marks on the wall every time somebody sins against you. Now we know, those of us who are married, do I have to explain this? 
There's a, there's a hash mark in your house. On the, there's a wall. You know the wall where you mark your kids' height as they grow, then around the corner, there's the one we keep against one another. We're going up to 490. When we get to 491, buddy, that's it. We're, we're done here. Is that the point of what Jesus said? And the answer is, of course not. His point is there is no limit to God's forgiveness, and neither should there be with us. There should be no limit to my forgiveness toward another believer or another person. Paul wrote these words in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He said, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, speaking of our harsh attitude and our words. Do not grieve the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away with you, put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Paul echoing the very sentiment that Jesus explained. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul later said a very similar thing. He says, Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. So just in two passages there, we find that we are exhorted to forgive just as we have been forgiven. Let me read to you a familiar passage that we usually have uh, inscripted on letterhead at our weddings and on our invitations and even in our wedding vows, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read it to you from the New King James, and then I want to explain something. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. In other words, it's not selfish or self-centered. Love is not provoked. And then it says, love thinks no evil. When you read the other translations for verse 5, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, where it says of that phrase, thinks no evil, here's the way the other translations render that. New American Standard, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The complete Jewish Bible, a translation I have when I use when I study, says it keeps no record of wrongs. And the NLT, NIV, and Amplified all say the same thing. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So what of this apparent disparity between thinks no evil... It does not keep an account or a record of a wrong suffered. The idea is that think no evil means literally not to take an inventory of the worthless things. Think no evil means not to take an inventory of the worthless things. This means keeping track of wrongs or past things and then bringing them up in a hurtful manner is expressly forbidden by the Holy Spirit. 
But yet this is what we do so often. It's what we do in our homes and in our marriages. And this is what we do with other fellow believers. And yet this is something that God says, if you have the love of God that's been shed abroad in your hearts, if you have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who is our seal until the day of redemption and who is our guide until we, we meet Jesus face to face, then these things must be true of us. And we must not resist them. We must not resist the work of the Word of God nor the work of the Spirit of God within our hearts. And so that's why Jesus said to Peter, no, Peter, not three times, not seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, it's interesting, the only other time that that phrase 70 times seven is used in the Bible, and it's only one other time, and it's found in Daniel chapter nine, where Daniel is speaking of the 70 weeks, that prophecy looking toward the the last days, toward the end time. And and it says there in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and following, that, uh, you know, till 77s have passed. And at the end of the 77s, what comes? It's the kingdom of God. Jesus comes back to rule and to reign. And so I, I think there might be a parallelism here with Jesus saying, you know, Peter, you need to forgive up to 70 times 7. In other words, if I may, until Jesus comes to establish the kingdom and we go to be with him. In other words, we are to be forgiving toward our fellow brothers and sisters until the day that we are with Jesus and his established kingdom. And then Jesus gives us this parable. Now remember, beginning in verse 23, as we come to this parable, that parables are taking a a spiritual or a heavenly or an eternal truth and casting it alongside Uh, an earthly truth or an earthly practicality so that we can try to grasp the similarity and make the connection. Parabolao, to, to cast alongside, to make a comparison in a certain way so that we can grasp, we can bridge to the heavenly or the earthly reality. So in verse 23, he begins, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like, compared to a parable, a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So keep in mind here as we read this, that this is a person who is in service to this king in this kingdom. And as we enter this, this, this servant has done something terrible. He's, he's mismanaged his master's funds. And it says in verse 24, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Let's put this into perspective. Uh, Denarii, one of the common uh, units of money in the Bible, is a day's wage. It's regarded to be just one day's wage. Well, a talent was equal to 6,000 denarii. When you do the math on that, it equals a little over 16 years. Okay? So one talent, let's just keep it simple here, keep the math simple. Two times we had math this morning. Sorry about that. So one talent is equal to roughly 15 years of labor. So what does he say here? He owed him 10,000 talents, or if you do the math, 150,000 years worth of labor. So you get the picture here right from the beginning that this is so big I mean, this debt, this this debt is like, you know, 
the national debt of the United States. You know, let's just say that was your, your debt. And so this, this, this master calling his servants in to settle accounts calls in this one servant who's like, man, this guy is the outlier. He owes so much money. He has mismanaged my money so badly. He owes me 10,000 talents. He owes me 150,000 years of labor. I mean, that is a staggering wage, is it not? It's important for us to understand that as we continue. But as he was not able to pay, and who would be, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and that payment be made. Well, it's an utter impossibility, is it not, that he could ever pay this back, that he could ever pay this debt? And notice here that as he looks at this, this wicked servant who has mismanaged his funds, and he says, I want you along with your family, your wife and your children, and all that you have to be sold so that payment can begin to be made. Hmm. Seems like there's a principle here that our sin affects other people, doesn't it? His, his uh, wife and his children probably did nothing wrong. They probably had no part in those business decisions and the dealings that this servant had made. And yet now they find themselves being sucked in through the sinful behavior of this servant. And now they're becoming a ransom. They're becoming a payment for his sin. And so this reminds us that our sin is ugly and our sin affects others. And it's something that we need to understand. We need to remember this. Our sin is not just unto ourselves. Our sin affects other people. Maybe it's worth stopping before we continue this morning and asking ourselves this question. In what areas of your life or in my life are we delinquent right now, meaning in our relationship with God, in any area of our life? And how is our sin, how is our delinquency in keeping those short accounts with God affecting others? You see, we may not be able to see how our sin is affecting others, but it is. That's the nature of sin. That's the principle of sin. I think of it this way. Sin is like weeds in our garden. If you've ever gone to try and pull up weeds or maybe you go to pull up some plant and you think, we'll just rip this thing right out and move on. And you're like working with it for a while. Why? Because that, that plant has roots that's become like tentacles and it's just spread out. And that's what sin is like in our lives. So maybe we need to consider before the Lord those areas where we're delinquent before the Lord and begin to think about how our sin might be affecting others and understand that even if we don't see it, our sin is, it does, it will affect others. And we need to take it before the throne of grace. So in Matthew chapter 18, verse 26, the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. 150,000 years worth of debt. And he thinks that a little time is going to solve his problem. The sentence makes no sense. It's an absurd claim, but yet we understand how in incredibly difficult circumstances, especially when we get caught, how inventive we will become under the most extreme and dire of situations. Oh, don't worry, I'll find a way. I'll find somebody who will give me the money and I'll give it to you. 
And then we're all done. But what about the person you think you're going to get the money from to pay that debt? Now, let's not miss here in the illustration of the parable that while this man, this servant, owed, uh, owed 10,000 talents or 150,000 years worth of labor to his master, think of how rich the master is. He's like, uh, what does the book say? The book says you owe me 150,000 years of labor. How rich is he? How wealthy is he? He's wealthy beyond belief. And understand that in this parable, obviously the master is who? It's God. And we are like this servant. Then the master of that servant, verse 27, was moved with compassion, released him and forgave the debt. You should underline, circle, highlight Matthew 18, 27, because this is how God treats you and me. Our sin is like 150,000 years worth of labor. We say of Jesus, and rightly so, he paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. He paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Spurgeon said, mercy that's measured is not divine. Mercy that's measured is not divine. The master of that servant was moved with compassion, that's mercy, released him and forgave him the debt. And this is how Jesus treats us. But that servant, verse 28, went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred days wages, so basically three months. Now we can pay that, right? We've all paid that. You probably have credit cards right now that have three months worth of pay on it that you've run up. So we can pay that off. That's that's within reach, three months worth of debt. So he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. This is where we get our old English term throttle. Someone coming up and grabbing someone by the neck and just shaking them and saying, pay me what you owe me. Now this is the servant who just walked out of the, the presence of his master who was just forgiven a debt that was so big that we can't even imagine it. We can't even imagine that size of a debt. And so it is with our sin. But he had just left his master's presence. His master had forgiven him. He finds a guy who owes him, as it were, 50 bucks, and says, pay me what you owe me. Pay me right now. And he says to him, The same thing, verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Same thing he said to his master. Notice verse 30. And he would not. Not that he could not, not that he was incapable, but that he would not. And he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So this was an act of his will. And what does that tell us? What does verse 30 tell us about this man's heart? 
that the forgiveness, the mercy, the tenderness that was shown him by his master meant nothing at all to him. His heart was not changed. His mind was not changed. His behavior was not transformed. He went before his master. He threw himself down. He he threw himself on the good graces, on the mercy of his master. His master forgave him. It says right there he had compassion on him and he forgave him. And now this man goes out, finds a man who owes him so much less. I mean, 150,000 years of labor versus three months. I mean, my goodness. It's insignificant, isn't it? But the unjust servant was unwilling to grant to others what he wanted others to grant to him. Perhaps he had the legal right to throw the man in prison, but he did not have the moral right. He had been forgiven himself. Should he not forgive his fellow servant? He and his family had been spared the shame and the suffering of prison. Should he not spare his friend? One person wrote this. He said, the world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive others, then we are only imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torment. What was wrong with this man? The same thing that is wrong with many professing Christians. They have received forgiveness, but they have not really experienced forgiveness deep in their hearts. Therefore, they are unable to share forgiveness with those who have wronged them. If we live only according to justice, always seeking to get what is ours, we will put ourselves into prison. But if we live according to forgiveness, sharing with others what God has shared with us, then we will enjoy freedom and joy. Peter asked for a just measuring rod, it's up to seven times, Lord, and Jesus told him to practice forgiveness and to forget the measuring rod. Wow. One of the things that is one of the greatest pleasures that I have as a pastor and most frightening things is dealing with counseling. And right now I'm dealing with um, two couples in particular who are dealing with infidelity. And as you can imagine, it's a very hurtful and a, a very difficult situation. But as I'm watching and uh, walking through this with them and talking with them, it, it's such a hard thing because of the, the sin and because of the tentacles of that sin and because of the harm to the families and the children and the spouse that was hurt. And my advice to those spouses, and we need to understand there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. We can give forgiveness and we should give forgiveness. And I think so far what we've dealt with in this passage of Scripture, it's abundantly clear that if we do anything other than forgive, then we will be putting ourselves in a prison. Reconciliation, it doesn't mean that we have to go back and you know, live with the person and all of that, but, but we need to forgive. We need to forgive. How many times have we heard the story, I've heard it many times, of someone where there's been some horrific crime. Maybe someone in their family was, was murdered. And they go to the trial, and they stand up and say in the trial to the one who murdered their loved one, 
I forgive you. Now that person is still going to go on and experience the consequences of their sin, correct? They're still going to go to jail. That doesn't mean that we're going to live in peace and harmony here forevermore. But by forgiving them, by saying, look, I've been forgiven. How can I hold against you something that I've been forgiven with? Remember, Jesus said that murder begins in the heart. Adultery begins in the heart. I may not have committed the physical act as this person did, but I'm guilty of the same sin before God. And we have to understand these things. Someone wrote this, and I love it. Grace bestowed becomes grace given. Grace bestowed becomes grace given. If we have truly received and understood the grace of God, and you could say that same thing with respect to mercy or forgiveness. Mercy bestowed becomes mercy given. Forgiveness bestowed becomes forgiveness given or granted. You see, as, as the light is being shined this morning on us as children of God, if I've been forgiven and I rejoice in the fact that I'm no longer a slave of sin, I've been forgiven. I'm free of the burden of the debt that I owe God, but yet I will not forgive someone else of their offenses. Does that mean we don't talk about it? And of course we do. That's what we just talked about, going to a brother who sins against you. But whether that brother or that sister repents or not, that's between them and God. My job isn't to secure their repentance. My job is to do my best to win them back to Christ in the sense of they've gone off on the path of sin. They've now broken their fellowship with God and they've gone off into left field and they're not walking with God. And my heart should be broken for the fact that they are not walking with God, but I've forgiven them for what they've done to me. I've released them of that debt. And if they will not repent, if they will not come back and acknowledge, then now they're in a place, right, where they have to deal with God. And we're going to read in just a few minutes some scriptures that will point to the fact that God is the one who will, who will avenge. God is the one who will judge what is going on with that person if they are choosing to live in unrepentant sin. It's not my job to force them to admit they're wrong. I can only do what God's called me to do as he's been outlining here for us in Matthew chapter 18. So when his fellow servants had seen what this servant had done, they were very grieved because they witnessed how the master had forgiven this infinite debt. And yet this servant did not forgive a a pittance to this other servant who owed him three months worth of wage. And so they went and they told their master. They were grieving. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant. Now what we all want to hear on the day we meet the Lord is what? Well done, good and faithful servant, right? Not this. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. Why? Because you begged me. And he had compassion. Should you not also have had compassion on your your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Now let's remind ourselves of something. Matthew chapter 6, where we find the Lord's prayer or the Lord teaching his disciples how to pray. 
In this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. See, Jesus taught us to pray like that all the way in the beginning. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I believe this parable is an illustration of what Jesus said there at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Jesus warned us that God cannot forgive us if we do not have humble and repentant hearts. We reveal the true condition of our hearts by the way we treat others. When our hearts are humble and repentant, then we will gladly forgive our brothers and sisters. But where there is pride and a desire for revenge, there can be no true repentance. And this means God cannot forgive. In other words, it is not enough to receive God's forgiveness or even the forgiveness of others. We must experience that forgiveness in our hearts so that it humbles us and makes us gentle and forgiving toward others. The servant in the parable did not have a deep experience of forgiveness and humility. He was simply glad to be, quote, off the hook. You see, he never really repented of his wrong. Someone else wrote this, So my heavenly Father will also do to you. The principle is clear. God has forgiven such a great debt that any debt owed to us is absolutely insignificant in comparison. Let me say that again. God has forgiven such a great debt that any debt owed to us is absolutely insignificant in comparison. No man can possibly offend me to the extent that my sins have offended God. No man or woman can possibly offend me to the extent that my sins have offended God. This principle must be applied in the little things done to us, but also to the great things done unto us. Another motive, someone else wrote, for forgiving others ought to be our recalling to mind the great day of judgment before God and the standard by which we shall be tried in that day. There will be no forgiveness in that day for unforgiving people. Such people would be unfit for heaven. They would not be able to value a dwelling place to which mercy is the only title and in which mercy is the eternal subject of song in heaven. Surely if we intend to stand at the right hand when Jesus sits on the throne of his glory, we must learn while we are on earth to forgive. Would we give proof that we are at peace with God, washed in Christ's blood, born of the Spirit, and made God's children by adoption and grace? Let us remember this passage and let us, like our Father in heaven, become forgiving. Would we grow in grace ourselves and become more holy in all of our ways and all of our words and all of our works? Let us remember this passage. Nothing so grieves the Holy Spirit and brings spiritual darkness over the soul as giving way to a quarrelsome and unforgiving spirit.
Well, in verse 34, the master was angry and delivered him to the torturers, wow, until he should pay all that was due to him. And then in verse 35, so my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. As is true with almost everything else that Jesus has said to us and taught us, it's an issue of the heart, isn't it? And how do we change our hearts? How, how do we come to the place that our hearts are truly changed? Therefore, if it were possible, we should be far quicker to forgive than God is, without precondition, without even waiting for repentance, because we stand as forgiven sinners who must also forgive we have an even greater obligation to forgive than God does. Since we have been forgiven so much, we have no right to withhold forgiveness from others. We are the debtor forgiven an almost infinite debt. Will we hold on to the small debts that others owe to us? If anyone had the right to withhold forgiveness, it is God. He forgives more freely and more completely than anyone we know. What possible right or excuse or reason do we have to hold on to our unforgiveness? It is also important to understand that a distinction can and should be made between forgiveness and reconciliation. True reconciliation of relationship can only happen when both parties are agreeable to it. And this may require repentance on one or both of the parties in the conflict. Yet, forgiveness can always be one-sided. Furthermore, forgiveness does not necessarily shield someone from the civil or the practical consequences of their sin. An interesting thing about the word forgive, it's a compound word, for and give. And it means to give ahead of time. So to forgive is to render to someone else the forgiveness before they deserve it. And does, isn't this what the scriptures tell us about us? That before the foundations of the earth, my name was written in the book of life? How does that even make sense? That the 150,000 years of labor that I go, God, oh God, the, the debt, the penalty for my sin which is so great, which is so infinite. God's already wiped it out. It's blotted out in his book. Before I was formed in my mother's womb. And yet we withhold the tiniest, pettiest things. And we refuse to forgive. A few scriptures to guide us here at the end this morning in Romans chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, God will take care of it. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Let me explain again that 
That idea of heaping coals of fire on someone's head. I, I remember the first time I ever heard that explained. Someone said, basically, you're taking the hot coals from your fireplace or from your, your wood stove or whatever, and you're dumping it on their head as if you're causing them harm. That's not the case. In that day, if you, the fire went out in your, your household, and that was something you needed to keep kindled perpetually, so that was, that was your source of heat, it was your source of cooking, the idea here is, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Meaning they would come in with their, their ash pot, so to speak, and say, fire has gone out in my house. Can I borrow some of your fire? And you give them some of your coals so they, they can go back to their house and continue to live and rekindle their fire and keep it going. So the idea of heaping coals of fire on their head is actually one of, not only have I forgiven, but I'm giving. I'm giving to help. And then he finishes this in Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's not possible in the flesh. That's only possible in the spirit. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another... Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, God will take care of someone else's unrepentant heart. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 14. For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And then he says, listen, this is what God says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, a verse we may have, many of us may have memorized. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <coughs> you see, God is faithful. If we go to him and we confess our sins to him, he forgives us. So should we be with respect to others coming to us for forgiveness from their trespasses. I don't know how many of you have uh, read the book by Corey Ten Boom, who was a prisoner of war in World War II. <coughs> she had been uh, unjustly put into a Nazi concentration camp, had been there for many years and experienced the wrath of her captors, uh, who uh, they had horrible conditions. I, we have the book out on our bookshelf out there called The Hiding Place. 
But I would recommend that you read it. But Corey tells the story years later after the war was over and she had gotten out of the training, the, excuse me, the concentration camp. And she was speaking at churches about just the wonderful things God had done for her. And truly he did wonderful things in her life throughout those days of her captivity. But one day as she was speaking at a church after service, she was greeting people after she had told her story. And this man came to her and she recognized that this familiar figure was actually a Nazi training, excuse me, concentration camp guard. He was one of her captors. And as he walked up to her and he, he asked her if she remembered him and then he stuck out his hand and said, would you grant to me this forgiveness that you just spoke of? And she tells the story that in that moment, the blood ran cold in her veins. But she said in that moment, she decided, I'm paraphrasing here, by faith, to stick out her hand and say, brother, I forgive you. And so she did that, but she, she tells the story of how, no, I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I didn't want to forgive him of all people because of the things he did to us, the horrible atrocities he committed against me and others. People died at his hand. And she said, but I did it. And I was able to extend forgiveness. You see, Jesus has spoken to us about light and salt, hasn't he? That we are the light of, to be the light of the world as his representatives. We are to be the salt of the earth. You see, light is seen and not heard. You see, there's a witness that's to go forth from our lives as light. And salt is not seen or heard. Salt is tasted and experienced. Am I, are you, have we been forgiven? Have we experienced the forgiveness? Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Then let it not be said of me, of you. May these words not fall from our lips. I will never forgive you. May it be so far from us that we would hold against another human being something for which we have been forgiven. James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God speaking. I'll close with this. Psalm 19. Listen to these words. Make this your prayer. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Who's your strength? The Lord. Who's your redeemer? The Lord. Why can you forgive? Because he forgave you. What right do I have to say I will not forgive because or until or when? The same right that the master in this parable. I mean, he could have held 150,000 years worth of labor against this man, but he said out of the compassion of his heart as representing God in the story, I had infinite compassion 
and mercy and love and grace and forgiveness upon you. Therefore, you also must forgive. You see, I think it's about forgiveness. Lord, this morning, we've been forgiven. And for that, we are eternally grateful. May we be grateful now, Lord. May we ponder this and may we experience your forgiveness in our lives right now, here today. Lord, may we walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. May we not take into account a wrong suffered. May we think no evil. May we not hold those things. Lord, may we, may we walk in forgiveness and freedom. You're the one who said, whom the Son has set free, he or she is free indeed. But Lord, we want to walk as children of freedom, children of forgiveness. We want to be people, Lord, of, of whom it's said that I know that person is saved And I see grace. I see the mark of Christ in their lives because of who Jesus is to them. May that be true of us, Lord. May the world look at us and may the light and salt flow from our lives. Lord, we need to be changed, transformed people. I pray today that we are. And if there's anything in our lives that marks of holding us back, from this kind of powerful forgiveness of the work of the Spirit and the Word in our lives, then may we shed it today and walk as children of light, children who are forgiven, people who are free. Lord, we say with every ounce of strength we can muster this morning, Lord, we love you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And this morning, if you or in a place where you do not know the Lord, where you've never surrendered your life to him. I I don't know any more powerful argument for that than that you've been forgiven. Will you accept and receive that forgiveness? Lord, may that be so today. And for those of us who need to just kind of, as it were, renew those vows of love to you, then we do that right now. And as we sing this song to close this morning, Lord, speak to us, minister to us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.